The scripture for today's sermons comes from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 58. The word of God speaks to us. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable, and the mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is God's word to us. Well, good morning, church. You're doing okay? Man, it is so good to be with you guys today. Um, It's really good to be with you guys, Cheryl, Elijah, and Ezra. Man, we're so glad you're here. I felt like this leap of joy in my chest rise up when you guys walked in the room. It just felt like... I'm used to this. I wish you were here all the time. Hey, our brothers and sisters in Mumbai, as the order of time zones would have it, have long, long ago already worshiped today. Uh, The sun has risen in Mumbai. They worshiped, and they're now, I don't know, post-dinner coffee or something like that, yeah, as it were. Um, And so it's our turn now. And so it's it's really fun to have you guys here. And uh, we'll pray for Sue. We always pray for you guys, but we'll pray for him this morning, uh, even as we get busy to worship. So hey, listen, if you've got a Bible, open up to um, 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, we're going to read the, uh, be in the passage that was just read moments ago. And I've been really excited about preaching today. Um, I hope the last few weeks uh, of going through 1 Corinthians 15, it's been sort of like Easter in July, as it were, like five weeks on the resurrection in the middle of the summer. Uh, I hope it's been edifying to you. It's been Easter in July, except with less pastels, maybe I would say, right? Um, but hey, listen, the passage we're looking at today, maybe it was as read, it's a familiar one to you. It's a champion text uh, for Christians. And, and here's the deal. I, I told my wife this week, I was a bit nervous to preach this week because no one's, well, I'll just say it this way. No one's ever mistaken me for a musical artist. I have zero musical ability at all. But I said, if I were an artist, I feel about preaching this text like an artist must feel if they were asked to cover a classic song. It's like the, the intimidation of just like, I, I can't cover a classic, like I'll mess it up. But that's how I felt preaching this text. My hope today, as we jump into it, if you'd please pray for me, that I would get out of the way and we would just let God's word breathe and do its own work among us, amen? So if you please pray for me, I'll pray for you and uh, we'll get to work. Our God, we come before you in the strong name of your son, Jesus. We come before you in Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we just say thank you that you will be worshiped among the nations. 
Thank you for our brothers and sisters in Mumbai who worshiped this morning in their own native tongue, and it was all the clear, all, all, the, all the equally clear to you as my prayer even now, and, and, and equally clear to you as all the languages of all the peoples and all the tribes and all the nations of the globe that have rose today and worship your son Jesus. Father, thank you that what we do today is we, we enter into an, a pre-existing worship service, not just with those who have already risen, but with the angels and the saints who have been worshiping you and don't quit. And so, Father, as we come before your word, I'm asking today that it would breathe. I'm asking that your word would breathe on us. It's living and active and has the power to shape and form and to call dead places inside of us back to life, to make faith where there's faith waning or there is no faith. God, I I pray that you would do what you can do and speak to places that no other word can go in this room this morning. Thank Thank you for the fact that you speak to us today. And we offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Everybody said... Amen. Amen. Well, the great country music prophet Johnny Cash (laughs) has this song, maybe you've heard it, it's called No Earthly Good. No Earthly Good. He has this lyric in the song, you're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. A refrain through the song, you're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. His song is a sort of a ballad of frustration against the kind of self-absorbed, self-righteous, escape-from-the-world kind of religion that has a tendency to neglect the bigger picture of caring for those in need right around you. He makes this indictment that you're so heavenly-minded, you're so stuck on yourself and your highbrow religion that you're no earthly good. It's sort of Cash's way of saying that you have neglected a witness of Jesus in the world. And there's no doubt that he has something to say. You hear it that way and you're going, man, Cash Cash is on to something. Maybe he is a bit of a country music prophet. And yet for the church in Corinth and even for us today, you might be able to argue, in fact, I would argue that actually those lyrics are more true in reverse or in the inverse. That we're so earthly minded that we're no heavenly good. We've become so earthly-minded that we're no heavenly good. More than we know, we're influenced by the culture and the world around us. We're so steeped in pop culture mantras for the good life. We're so fermented in current political rhetoric that we're often spiritually unaware and spiritually desensitized. We're able to quote people of the day more than we're able to quote Scripture. We're often just as guilty of being consumed along with those who claim to have no Christian faith of having a view of the world that's sort of like, let's just get all we can while we can. Let's just get while the getting's good. We've become so earthly minded that we're no heavenly good. And I wonder if one of the reasons we tend to be so fixed on the now is because we're not compelled I wonder if one of the reasons we're so fixed on the now and so fixed on getting while the getting's good is because we're not convinced by the Christian vision of the future. Sure, especially in Oklahoma, maybe there's a belief in heaven, but we have very little longing for it. Maybe we we desire heaven at a sentimental level, but we don't really want to deal with death. 
We just sort of want to have it there as a precious moment doll to think about. Maybe there's this confession of the presence of God being the fullness of joy, but if we have any more investigation of the real pattern of our lives, the presence of joy that we confess in the very presence of God, we don't crave that, and we're not willing to sacrifice things in order to have more of it. Our appetites are more earthly than they are heavenly, and maybe we think to ourselves, well, at least I can taste the right now. At least I can season the right now in a way that I like. We don't want to deal with death. We might be willing to talk about anything. We might be willing to talk just about anything with anybody so long as the topic isn't death. Even my six-year-old just the other day was talking about his fear of getting hurt, and he looked at me just as honest as he could say it, and he says, Dad, I don't want to die. There's a fear there. There's a fear there that's sort of inherent in all of us. The Greek philosopher Epicurus said it this way, what men fear is not that death is annihilation. We don't fear that death is really the end of it all. What we fear is that it's not. There's a fear inside of us of what's on the other side or maybe what's not on the other side. We know that we have failed. We know that the hidden parts of our lives aren't as they should be. We've failed, haven't we? We've failed as friends. We've failed as spouses. We've failed as children. We've failed as parents. We've failed as people. And if there is a judge who is able to someday put everything back to right, if there's not a judge who's able to someday put everything back to right, then there is no hope, and we should be scared. But if there is a judge, can any of us stand under the judgment? The failure that we know to be true isn't just out there. We know it's in here. This is why the writer of Ecclesiastes says it this way, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. The writer of Ecclesiastes says it's better to go to a funeral than it is to a wedding. Why would he say that? Because one of those is the end of all mankind, and those who want to live well would take that to heart. Those who want to live well would take that to heart. Somehow, everyone tends to think more clearly about life at funerals and not so clearly at weddings. And some want to deal with death by trying to live in denial, in the denial of death. So, so why not just live in the now and do your best to numb yourself? Some might try to cope with denial by taking a popular religious option, receive Jesus as merely a, a therapeutic comfort instead of having to face a hellish alternative. Others deal with death by convincing themselves it's just nature, it's just a natural part of life and everyone takes their turn. We don't want to deal with death. But as we come to the end of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul has this shout to us today. Paul has this shout that Christians of all people are not those who live in denial about death. Christians of all people are not those who cope with it as just a force of nature. Christians are those who stand in the face of death because of defeat. And not because we are the ones who are finally defeated, but death is. Even more, it will one day be destroyed. 
In this entire chapter, Paul's been arguing that this confidence that we have in the face of death isn't just the power of positive thinking. It's not ethereal. It's not conceptual. It's not allegorical. It's not merely therapeutic. Instead, it's a confidence that's fiercely realistic. Our confidence is fiercely historical. Our confidence is is fiercely literal. It's a confidence that's rooted in a tomb that was once occupied But three days later, it was emptied. And the final appeal and the big idea, the final appeal of this chapter and the big idea that we're going to come around today is this. It'll be on the screen. A full conviction of the resurrection. A full conviction, like a deep belief in the resurrection, like a heart-level download of the resurrection has the power to make you hope-filled, sturdy, and steadfast now and in the face of death. A full conviction of the resurrection has the power to make you hope-filled, sturdy, and steadfast both now and in the face of death. We're gonna take the rest of our time to unpack those three virtues in this text. Hope-filled, sturdy, and steadfast. Look at verse 50. Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. What Paul is doing here is he's continuing in the same thought we left off last week on the resurrection of the body. You remember the question that the Corinthians were asking back in verse 35, if there's a resurrection, what kind of body are we going to have? What's that going to be like? And his answer is that the resurrected Jesus is the prototype for our resurrection bodies. Remember Jesus. Resurrected from the dead, he was seen by his disciples physically in a kind of way that he was recognized by them. And yet he was totally renewed and better than he was before. Remember, the resurrected Jesus actually held conversations with people with audible voice. He gave and received real hugs with his friends. The resurrected Jesus even enjoyed a cookout on the beach with his friend Peter. And Paul's point is that that's true for you too. You will have a body that's physical and literal like the one that you have now, only one that is completely redeemed and restored, never to perish, never to decay, and never to be stained by sin again. Pastor and scholar Andrew Wilson talks about our resurrection bodies like this. My future body is to my current body what an oak tree is to an acorn. It's identifiably the same. And with the life of the new emerging from the corpse of the old, but at the same time greater to an unimaginable degree. And so when Paul says that flesh and blood cannot come into the kingdom of God, he's saying that your body as it is now, your current body as it is, isn't suited to be literally and physically in the presence of the living God and his restored creation. The perishable doesn't inherit the imperishable, but God will, for those who look to Jesus, give you a body that is renewed and restored, perfectly suited for everything that he has for you in his presence and with his people in his restored, created order. So the question is then for our text today, well, how does that happen? How does God give us these renewed and redeemed and restored bodies on the great day? Paul answers the question and he describes it the best he possibly can without having experienced it 
yet. Look at what he says in verses 51 to 53. Every word of this is breathtaking. Paul says, behold, listen up. Do I have your attention? Behold, I tell you a mystery. When he says mystery, he says this is not something unknowable. The word mystery biblically means something that was once hidden that's now made known, something that was once concealed that's now revealed. He says, we shall not all sleep. Not all of us are going to die, but we will all be changed. And this is going to happen in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For that trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body, he says, must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. So he tells us the way that God is going to do this, both in a when and in a how. But it's not in a win like a date on the calendar, but at the return of Jesus, at the sound of that trumpet. What Paul says is that God is going to blow a whistle and he's going to clear the pool. And on that day, there's not going to be any confusion. There's not going to be this, oh my gosh, am I going to miss it or did I miss it? Revelation 1-7 says that on that day, every eye will see him. Every eye will see him. It will be unmistakable. He says, the dead will be raised. And those that aren't dead who are living on that day, he says two times, all of us will be changed. The perishable body, the one you have now that's decaying and aging and things stop working, plus 35. He says, that body will be clothed imperishable. The mortal body will put on immortality. This will be a physical reality, not of the concept of eternal life, but a physical reality that we're in it. And he says, this is going to happen. I love this. This is going to happen in the twinkling of an eye. This is going to happen in the twinkling of an eye. All the change that a Christian experiences internally at the heart level on the great day will happen externally at the bodily level to an even greater degree, and this won't be a drawn-out process. There's not going to be a fight. We all know how fast the blink of an eye is, but Paul says this is the twinkling of an eye. As fast as it takes for the eye to perceive light, we're talking in a billionth of a second. We will all be changed on the great day at the sound of the trumpet. Dementia, gone. Parkinson's, gone. Cancer, gone. Chronic anxiety and depression, gone. Paralysis and disability, gone. The temptations and sins that gnaw at you, gone. Our heart's inability to love what it ought to love and the way it ought to love it, gone. In the twinkling of an eye. Do you see how a full conviction of the resurrection has the power to make you a hope-filled person? And by hope, I don't mean that we're just naively optimistic as Christians. We're sort of head-in-the-sand people hoping for the best. That's not what I mean by hope. Biblical hope isn't Pollyanna. Biblical hope isn't wishful thinking. In the Bible, here's what hope is. Hope is a deep conviction based on compelling evidence. It's a deep conviction based on compelling evidence. So hope in the Bible is not, I hope so. Hope in the Bible is, I know so, because the tomb is empty. I know so because the tomb is, and this is why the Apostle Paul encourages the church at Thessalonica who are grieving over loved ones who had passed away. He says, 
We grieve. As Christians, we certainly grieve those who have passed away, but we grieve different. He says, we grieve as those with hope. We grieve as those with a guarantee. That's 1 Thess 4.13. We know what's coming for us because of what happened in our Lord Jesus. We know what's coming because of what happened to him and he came for us. This is also why the New Testament writers go over and over again in the New Testament to plead with us to fight against our sin. Listen, believer, do not give up. Do not give up and do not excuse yourself in the fight against sin. Your flesh will one day be transformed. Your flesh will one day be transformed. God is with you now, and please hear this. Every feeble effort that you put forward to put down your sin, every way that you stay with it to put down your anxieties, to put down your lust, to put down your greed, to put down your judgmentalism and self every effort that you have to put those things down, and yet it's still with you, is storing up in you a greater expectation of the day when it's gone forever. Don't cave. The resurrection has the power to make you hope-filled. The resurrection also has the power to make you sturdy. To make you sturdy. I love this. Look at how Paul says it in verse 54. When. That's an amazingly sturdy word to say. When. Not if. Not like... I'm wishful toward this. When. When the perishable puts on the imperishable... And when the mortal puts on immortality, then, then it will come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Paul pulls from the words of the Old Testament prophets Isaiah and Hosea, and he starts taunting death. He's taunting it. Where's your victory? Where's your sting? Swallowed up. Now, I've got to be honest with you. As excited as I am to preach these verses, as lofty as they are, they've also been at times to me somewhat strange when Paul starts taunting this way. I have at times read these verses in a way that I can hear my own nervous reply behind the taunt. Yeah, but death isn't swallowed right now, Paul. Like, death isn't swallowed right now. I still feel the sting of death at every funeral I attend. Like, I still feel the sting of death at every cemetery that I drive by and every visit to a headstone of a past loved one. I felt some of the sting of death just a few days ago. And one of our kids asked my wife and I about the child that we lost in miscarriage. And he called her a sister, wherever he came up with that. Some of you know that sting. You feel the sting of, it's not supposed to be this way. But this is not the Apostle Paul. These taunts are not Paul just trying to do his best to stand strong in a denial of death. This isn't Paul trying to have some bravado and talk to himself into believing that death is just natural and therefore it's not to be feared. This is Paul, eyes wide open about the sorrows of death in the present. Look at what he says in verse 56. 
we know that the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. What Paul is saying is that sadly, you and me were those who have played with the stinger of death. We've played with sin, we've played with the stinger, and we acted like it wasn't a stinger at all, like it had no consequence. And the reason there is a power in the sting is because the law of God demands a judgment for every rebellion against his righteousness. It demands a judgment for every rejection of his authority. But this is not where Paul ends. He sustains the taunt in verse 57, but he says, thanks be to God, because doesn't he give us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ? And how does he give us the victory over sin and the law? How does does God do it through Jesus? Well, he's already told us that back in verses three and four, the gospel, that it's of first importance. He gives us the victory over sin and the law because Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, the law. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, the law. That's how he does it. Jesus died the death that we deserved under the judgment of God for sin. And because he didn't have sins of his own to pay for, after paying for our sin, listen, God raised him from the dead, drawing out the sting of death for both Jesus and all who would look to Jesus. Just like a father who would wrap his arms around a child who is stinging out of fear for a bee getting them. And the father taking the sting of the bee himself and saying to the child, you don't have to fear, the bee only stings once and I've taken the sting. The resurrection of Jesus for sinners is the removal of the stinger of death from getting the last word. This is why Jesus is able to tell Martha when he's standing before the tomb of her brother Lazarus, before he raises him from the dead, he says to her, I've showed up and I'm not just anybody. He says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. He says, whoever believes in me, even though he dies, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never truly die. And then he ends with the question, Do you believe this? Do you understand who's standing before you? Do you believe this? There's so much here, guys. This is the flex of the entire New Testament. This is why Paul's gonna tell us in Romans chapter eight that for those who are in Jesus, you are more than a conqueror. You are more than a conqueror. That's a crazy thing to be called but because you can only become more than a conqueror when your enemy death is not only defeated, you become more than a conqueror when your enemy's defeated, but so defeated that you're now, your enemy becomes your servant. As one author said it for the Christian, death is no longer an executioner. Death is a gardener. He can only serve to make you better. All death can do now is usher you into the presence of God and set the stage for your future resurrection to come at the sound of the trumpet should you die before Christ returns. I want to give you one more here because it's so good and it captures the sturdy power of the resurrection. George Herbert was an Anglican priest in the 1600s, and if you've ever heard his name, you probably heard it because of his poetry. He's got this poem called A Dialogue Anthem, which is a conversation between Christian and death. And here's how the poem goes. The Christian says, 
Alas, poor death, where is your victory? He picks up the taunt of Paul. Where is your famous force, your ancient sting? And death replies, poor mortal, void of story. Have you not heard the story? Go spell, take a rest, and read how I have killed your king. Christian says, poor death, and who was hurt thereby? Your curse being laid on him actually made you accursed. Death says, let losers talk, for you will die. These arms shall crush you. Christian says, spare not and do your worst. I shall one day be better than before, and you so much worse, and you shall be no more. The resurrection has the power to make you hope-filled. The resurrection has the power to make you sturdy in the face of death. And the final thing today, a full conviction of the resurrection makes you steadfast. It makes you steadfast. Look at how Paul ends this. He says, therefore, it's a really important word for Paul. It's Paul saying, in case you're asking the question today, so what? Hope-filled, great. Sturdy, great, so what? What difference does that make? Paul says, in light of the entire 57 verses before this that proclaim the resurrection, I'll tell you what. He says, this matters right now. He says, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. He says, be immovable, always then abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Why should I continue after this Jesus in a world that is opposed to him? Because, he says, you can know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Believing this right now applies to you. It applies to you. We've been saying this by way of implication of the last four weeks, but right here, Paul makes this as plain as he possibly can. The resurrection is not the tag that we throw onto the end of the death of Jesus. The resurrection is the hope that we have that everything that Jesus said about himself is true. And so Paul says, Christian, be steadfast. Be immovable. Translation, hold the line. Hold the line. In a cultural moment where there's temptation to adjust on Jesus, maybe he's not the only way. In, in a cultural moment where there's temptation to adjust on issues of sin and a judgment of sin, is there really anything, uh, is there really anything that's such a thing as sin? In a moment where we're tempted to adjust on sexual ethics, on issues of the authority of the Bible, if we're tempted to adjust on believing something like a resurrection from the dead, Paul says, don't let anybody push you over. Don't let anybody push you over. Be steadfast, be immovable. Listen, there's always a cost to following Jesus. This is what Paul's driving at. There's always a cost to following Jesus, and I don't know what the cost is gonna be for you. Maybe it's social. You lose the approval of others because you hold the line. Maybe it's political. Maybe it's cultural. You see, over time in following Jesus, inevitably, this is what's true, you will be seen in time to be on the wrong side of the issues of the day. If that hasn't happened yet, it will happen. But here's Paul's point. Don't flinch. Don't flinch. There is a cost to following Jesus, but the cost of walking away from the empty tomb is always greater. 
The cost of walking away from the empty tomb is always greater. He also says, so then be abounding, like be flourishing, thrive in the work of the Lord. Don't just hold the line. He says, get busy applying everything that Jesus is to every area of your life. Here's a question I have for you today, Christian. What area of your life does does the gospel seem to be most disconnected? In what area of your life does the death and resurrection of Jesus seem to be the most unapplied or even irrelevant? Where's there an area of your life where maybe over here you're attuned to Jesus, but over here you've just saw it as disintegrated? The question becomes, what would it look like for you to submit your finances maybe to the resurrected Jesus? Maybe that's an area disconnected. What would it look like for the way that you think about money and that you spend money to be submitted to the resurrected Jesus? What about the bitterness that you have, the bitterness that probably all of us have against people who have betrayed us or hurt us? What would it look like to submit that bitterness to the resurrected Jesus who knows something about betrayal? What would it look like for you to submit your hidden thought patterns that look more like sexual fantasy than sexual integrity? What would it look like to submit those to the resurrected Jesus? You see, here's the point. Paul says that you can trust that any area of your life where you hold the line, any area of your life where you apply the lordship of Jesus, you can trust that you won't regret that. You won't regret that. He says your labor in doing so is not in vain. It'll never be a loss. It'll never be for naught. Listen, you didn't make up this gospel, Christian. This gospel is making you. You didn't form this gospel, Christian. This gospel is forming you. There's so much more we could say on the issue of the resurrection, but that's why these things aren't reserved for Easter only. One of my favorite responses to, why are you so confident in the resurrection? How do you really believe in the resurrection of the dead? Came from a Catholic philosopher named Peter Kreeft. He says, I believe the resurrection because I've seen it. And what he means by that is, I see with my own eyes, but I also see with the eyes of all the people through the history of the church since the resurrection. I'm I'm a seeing person with all kinds of other seeing people who bear witness. I don't just see myself, I see in community. I see eyes wide open. I see through the eyes of the 12 disciples who saw Jesus resurrected. I see through the eyes of the 500 that were still alive that when Paul wrote this book to the church in Corinth, saw the resurrected Jesus, I see through their eyes. I see through the eyes of those who inherited faith as a testimony of those 500 and those 12. I see through the eyes of those who inherited faith as a testimony of those who inherited that faith and then passed it down to me. And I see through my own eyes because I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I one day will be in the twinkling of an eye. But thanks be to God, because of the resurrection, I'm not what I once was. I believe in the resurrection because I see it. I see it. A full conviction of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus has the power to make you hope-filled. It has the power to make you sturdy. And it has the power to make you steadfast now 
and in the face of death. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you please, in a similar way that we've asked over the last few weeks, would you please shine a light onto any area of our life that we've disconnected from the truth of the gospel? Thank you that there's no part of our life that the truth of your death for our sin and the truth of your resurrection from the dead, there's no part of our life that that does not touch. So God, I'm asking, <laughs> by the power of the Spirit, resurrected Jesus, would you please touch marriages? Would you please touch relationships between parents and children? Would you please touch areas of bitterness Would you please touch areas of belligerent hypocrisy? Would you please touch every area of our life despite our efforts to hide from you? God, we look forward to the day that in the twinkling of an eye, we are changed. We look forward to that great day, and we're saying, as much change as you would bring us in this day, bring it, God. Your kingdom come, your will be done in my life, in our lives, just like it's happening in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. In Jesus' name, amen.